Stay hungry, stay foolish. Even before the pandemic, it seemed the world was spinning so fast, it's difficult to keep up. Arguably, a lot of the technological disruption that was around in 2019 simply got accelerated. Remote working, digitization and AI, just to name a few. My guest today notes in his book, 250 years ago, the Industrial Revolution replaced our arms and legs at work. The fourth Industrial Revolution is now replacing our brains. He says the machine age is engulfing both organizations and people. This shift is challenging the very essence of what it means to be human. His book, The Human Edge, How Curiosity and Creativity Are Your Superpowers in the Digital Economy, won Business Book of the Year in 2020. The book centers around a practical toolkit to master four human superpowers, consciousness, curiosity, creativity, and collaboration. We welcome author of The Human Edge, Greg Orm. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Aidan. I'm really pleased to be here. Greg, I really enjoyed the book. I was telling you off air how you diverge so much. It's so obvious how much you've read to make the book simple to read. It was really accessible and I highly recommend it in this age of massive change. Let's get straight into it. You say the Dutch chess master Jan Hein Donner was once asked how he'd prepare for a match against AI and he replied, I would bring a hammer. And you cite this quote to highlight the prevailing climate of fear around AI, but also how the building blocks of your human edge are the four C's. I think that's really early in the book, isn't it? That 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 particular anecdote. And I, I, it really caught my eye because it expresses quite quickly, doesn't it? The feeling of fear and disempowerment that people have and have had when they think about artificial intelligence. And certainly when I was writing the book, which was 2018, 2019, uh, there was a really lot of hype around artificial intelligence. I think that's coming back now because during this pandemic, as you've just said, um, you know, these things have been accelerated. And I think we're going to see a lot of AI automation of white collar jobs in the coming years. Um, so I, I just got really interested in that. What, what's our relationship to AI? And broader than that, the whole digital economy, which is often underpinned by AI. And I thought that that idea of I need a hammer to smash this thing because I'm scared of it really intrigued me. I actually think what I produced in the end was a book that was a lot more hopeful and optimistic than that. But I kind of started on that note. You raise a, a very important point that I think we need to be optimistic. I think that sets the tone of how we think. And therefore, we must focus on the positives here. And you mentioned this, and this is an underlying thread often through work on AI and change and the human edge, as you talk about, is that many people believe that AI will take jobs. But the question they really are left wondering is, will it mean a net more jobs or less? Because in previous industrial evolutions, we saw that new jobs were created that never existed before. And you mentioned here, data hygienists, AI personal personality trainers, and ethicists, for example, but nobody yet knows if there's going to be a net growth or reduction in human employment. My background is not not as a coder and technologist, nor am I uh, an economist, I, I'm someone who's interested in human behavior and how we respond to that. Or as you say, I had to bring a lot of this together to try and address this question. 
you know, I, I, my take is I don't know whether there'll be a net increase of jobs. It's not something I particularly tackle in the book. I think, you know, if I was advising my I've got two teenage sons and we do talk about what they're going to do for a living. You know, I think it, it's probably wise in the coming years to, you know, to be in STEM subjects, the so-called science and technology and math subjects. It's not a bad idea to be in uh, Internet security. <laughs> you, know, you think that's going to go up. But uh, the book really isn't about second guessing jobs per se. It's really more about saying, okay, so this AI is coming. It probably, well, it definitely will take some job types in in total. So, you know, if you're in a very, very simple and algorithmic job, such as coding books in a library or being a junior tax accountant or maybe even a long distance lorry driver, because autonomous driving is an AI play, then it's likely, I think, that your job is going to be automated sometime in the next five uh, years or so. What, what I'm more interested in the book is, is the rest of us, um, and that's in the majority, in my opinion, from what I can see. And I think those people in more complex cognitive professions, if you like, what used to be called knowledge workers, will see uh, our jobs cheese sliced away by AI. So the truly routine parts of our jobs, you know, that's where I, the current generation of AI is really good. So don't compete when you're going to lose a war. Get out of the routine stuff and into a job shape that increasingly looks like it'll be an advantage to be more, not less human. And that is the real theme of the book. How can you be more, not less human in the workplace, of course, in, in life more generally? And you suggest if we're wondering about how to choose a trade that will remain relatively safe for the foreseeable future, we need to ask the following question, how complex, unpredictable, emotion-driven and potentially creative can this role be? And that's a very good place to start. I think it's a good question to ask. And, and again, that's early in the book when I'm trying to help people to think about this in a, in a rational way. Uh, and so the cheese slicing is, you know, just to give a really solid example of that, you know, uh, as a speaker, I speak before before this pandemic at least i used to spend quite a lot of my time booking flights uh you know or, you know or having having conversations with an assistant to do that you know we've seen with that fabulous vid video of googleplex that natural language processing in conjunction with ai will probably take that bit off the table uh both for the assistant and for myself so as the job gets more and more concentrated you know the bits that are left are things that require truly human skills. So I'm talking about things like things that AI just doesn't do very well and probably won't do very well for many years, like being passionate, finding a wider meaning in your work, having empathy for fellow human beings, uh, being curious about the next question, uh, rather AI does the last question really well, being creative, having uh, general thinking, being able to think across domains. Um, so all these things... AI is not good at that. And I think that's the good news. I got fascinated by, um, there's a guy called Hans Moravec, who's a mathematician. He came up with Moravec's paradox, which I mentioned in the book. And it's a beautifully visual analogy that if, you know, the world is made up of, the cognitive world is made up of mountain peaks and valleys, the mountain peaks are what I'm talking about. Those are where the human skills lie. 
And AI and machines in general, not just recently, but over a hundred years, have been filling up the valleys. So you know, it took calculation off the off off the map many years ago. You know, we don't we, we all use calculators and computers now. And Maravec said this: the paradox is this: is where AI is strong, we are weak, and where we are strong, AI is weak. So you know that that's the division that you should be looking at. Go to where you're strong, and those are the things that certainly when I joined the workplace, Aiden, uh, these quote unquote soft skills were not particularly well respected, and that is changing rapidly. Yeah, and let's put the the challenge in context because you do this beautifully. You you create this kind of thought experiment. You say she never takes a break, a vacation, or a suspicious duvet day. We all know about those. She handles calls 24 seven, 365 days a year. She gets better as she does more. She never loses her cool and doesn't ask for a salary increase. She never demands an expensive orthopedic chair, compassionate time to mourn a loved one or maternity leave. On top of all that, she can theoretically chat to 1 million customers at the same time. She is Emily. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's terrifying, isn't it? Of course, Emily, is not a real person. Emily is uh, a real-life artificial intelligence that works for a bank uh, on the customer service side, and obviously we're seeing chatbots. Chatbots, rather, we're all we're all used to those, and that's the, that's the, that's the bit where you reach for your hammer, isn't it? Where you just think, well, how how the heck do I compete with that? But you know what's interesting to me, even in customer face simple customer facing roles like that, there's never enough time. Uh, and the whole point of this is not just to retreat to areas that, you know, where cap our capabilities fit as human beings, but just to make more of our time on this planet and with our organizations. So take that, for example, that is literally someone effectively AI being in a chat uh, center or whatever you call them, the, the connection centers that all companies now have. How many times have you been on a call where that person is clearly going through a script, that a human is clearly going through a script and behaving like a robot? And all the research shows we prefer to know it's a bona fide machine rather than a human pretending to be a human and actually behaving like a machine. So companies should take note of this. So, you know, the way they need to route their calls, and they're beginning to do this, is for the very simple stuff, the algorithmic stuff where a machine will do, you go to the machine for the more complicated bits that require empathy, the more tricky problems that might require bringing, you know, two different departments together, you need a human who's actually got their brain switched on. So, Greg, just to give a little bit more context to this, you start the book, the first half, part one is essentially about the challenges that we're facing, cognitive, AI, technological shifts, the speed of change. And then the second part is more, what can we do about it? But one of the great graphs that you're sharing for those watching, for those of our viewers watching us on YouTube, they will see it now. I'm going to share it. It's the future fit versus future unfit graph where you show the skills that are no longer necessary and the ones that are more increasingly necessary. Let's talk to a bit to this. But all my electricity cut off mid interview and it hasn't come back on. I'm so lucky that I have my phone at 30% and my computer charged 100%. So I've hooked it up here with personal hotspot. So my, my view has totally changed. All my lights have changed. I look a little bit better because I'm now in the dark. So uh, great to have you back, Greg. And thanks for persevering as I uh, got my tech 
my tech stack together again. No problem at all. Uh, what was funny is when you'd gone, I continued for about a minute and a half thinking you were still there. So I was, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a familiar feeling of talking to myself. I have archaic light here. I have a candle, if you can see it there. I, so I can, I can light myself with the candle. But um, it reminds me of that saying, is the game worth the candle? It absolutely is. So let's keep going. We were, we were just on, I'm going to show a graph here. It was future fit versus future unfit. And let's have a bit of empathy for most of our audience are actually listeners rather than viewers. So let's talk through this. And I know you know this by heart because you've written it yourself. You've developed this. So let's let's take it away. Sure. Uh, and for those who are seeing it and not seeing it, really, it's just a sort of, it was a thought I had about how I'm observing the workplace dividing between those who I say are future fit and those who are not. And so on the future fit side, it really kind of sums up the outcomes of the capabilities of the book. So, you know, I see future fit being purpose driven. So they're releasing that good dopamine to get themselves motivated to work. They're focused in a digitally distracted world. They're curious questioners, which leads them to be creative. I always think curiosity is the, the cognitive fuel, the gateway drug to creativity, if you like. And, and if you're creative and you're coming up with ideas, you're being innovative, you need to be collaborative to test which ideas work and which don't. And so obviously on the other side of that divide, which you know we don't want to be on, we don't want our kids or our loved ones to be on because I think it's going to be a difficult place to be in the next 10 years, are people that are simply working for the paycheck in very simple jobs that they don't feel attached to. They are chronically distracted. They're incurious. They think they're, quit they're finished with school, uh, which is absolutely patently wrong. The World Economic Forum says every five years or so, we're going to have to throw out about 40% of our knowledge and just learn a bunch of new stuff just to keep up. They won't be creative because unless you're taking on new knowledge, it's not very easy to be creative. And they'll be seen as a cost rather than an asset on the great balance sheet of life. And that's, that's a tricky place to add value. I'm going to jump ahead of my notes because you mentioned dopamine there. And we had a brilliant episode, one of my favorite episodes, a few, probably about over a year ago with Daniel Z. Lieberman called The Molecule of More, an entire book devoted to that molecule, dopamine. And you also focus on meaning as the motivation molecule, which fuels the seeking system. Many of our listeners do what they do as change makers for meaning. And this helps us overcome challenges of such work that are integrated into this work. It's challenging, it's difficult. We're dealing with resistance quite a lot. But others are perhaps waiting for the opportunity for more meaning as their work delivers a paycheck and security, but also comes with a feeling of emptiness. And in health terms, that is the same as adversity for the body and mind. I'd love if you talk about this, because when we're working without meaning, our body is essentially under stress. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously we've seen a, quite a stressful time at the moment. And part of the, uh, I was listening to a great um, uh, podcast the other day uh, with the comedian uh, Seinfeld, if you remember him way, yeah. way back when. He's a brilliant guy uh, who's really understood his process and stayed at the top of that comedy game for so long. And he said something that was really cool, which is like the mind is an infinitely complex thing, but the brain is a stupid little dog. And if you treat the dog right and get the chemistry in the dog right, you can do amazing things. And I, th I think what he was saying there was, you know, if you get the right habits, you can actually get the right brain chemistry. So come back to your question about dopamine. Um, effectively, the dopamine bit is, is connected to my first C, 
consciousness and underneath that C, the idea of meaning, because each of the C's has got two bits attached to them, if you like. And so I've been talking about meaning in, in the workplace for many years now. So it's a, a well over a decade. But what's exciting now is we, we know it's not only deeply psychologically motivating to have a why, as, it, as people call it, to, to understand why you're doing what you do. It's also really built deep into our ancient brain structures that if you can have a life where you're exploring and you feel curious and you feel you're living your so-called best life, it releases this chemical you were talking about, dopamine, which is also, by the way, called the, the motivation molecule as well as, I can't remember what you just said, but it's, it's, got, it's got quite a few nicknames now. Uh, and what that does, dopamine is really interesting because it's released in your brain on the anticipation of pleasure or ha just having had pleasure. So uh, if you can get a life which is releasing this dopamine, it becomes a self-fulfilling property. You do something that you think is cool, dopamine gets released, you do more of that cool thing, more dopamine comes, and you effectively become your own drug dealer. <laughs> you know, not a drug dealer with a, like a disposable phone and a, and a facial <laughs> tattoo, but you know, someone, someone who's getting you out of bed in the morning and really, really going for it. So I really think that's amazing. And you can do that for the people around you. So it's partly purpose comes at the start because it's a foundational thing to, to help you to want to take those risks that innovation implies. It's really interesting because when you, we talk of dopamine, we talk about the receptors for dopamine being burned out. So for example, if I take a certain drug, my dopamine receptors get used to it. So I need to feed it more in order to get that same dopamine hit. And you mentioned sugar does the same thing. And this was really enlightening for me because I hadn't connected this dot before that I always talk about the importance of health. And even to my kids who are 11 and 8, I say about how training is not just about cosmetic looks. It's about powering the brain, but also it's about the neurochemistry of the brain. And you mentioned about sugar getting, you know, d dopamine receptors burning out by sugar. And I noticed something with myself. So on days like today, I write my blog, I do that early work, I know you do the same every morning, you get up early, and you write when your motivation is at its highest. But I also noticed a trend where I use those days as fast days, and I don't eat those days until I go home. So I, I don't get home to about 7pm. So I literally don't eat from 7pm the previous day for, for it's 24 hours, essentially. But I never thought that what I'm getting is a dopamine hit from the work rather than food or rather than some type of treat that I'm feeding myself. And it's probably this really important carrot that's making me get the, the feedback and the meaning from the work rather than distractions. Yeah, well, there might be a couple of things going on there. I mean, I think that's I've tried a bit of that fasting and I think Partially, it releases interesting other hormones in the body that just help you go along. But absolutely, as you know, uh, Aidan, there's parts of the book where I talk about designing your day to get to those productivity sprints. So that's not just about dopamine, although it is about dopamine. It's about saying every one of us, if we look at our circadian rhythms, have parts of our day that are uniquely productive to us, where we're more likely to get into this, what the psychologists call a state of flow which is heavily correlated with, with the sense of purpose and dopamine. 
And what's really interesting is if you look at flow, which uh, there was a great book about it uh, about 20 years ago by a Hungarian psychologist called uh, Mihahi Csikszentmihalyi. <laughs> great name. Uh, and that's when you are so uh, engaged in a subject that time flies uh, and, and you're being just stressed just the right. And I know you were a very, very good rugby player. So sports people talk about being in the zone where nothing else matters. You are just locked into that game and suddenly you look up and the uh, and time has flown. It could happen even in a training session as well. So I, I like to think of uh, the book being really for cognitive athletes. We should start seeing ourselves in that way, start getting the dopamine flowing, start redesigning our days, which is easier now in remote working. So we're getting the most of ourselves. I mean, five times more productive. Uh, and like you, I write in the morning because I've learned over time, and this came even before I discovered the science, if I can get up and get three hours of writing done between 6.30 and 9.30, for example, um, just that sense of flow will be enormously beneficial for me. And then I do the less cognitively demanding ta uh, uh, tasks later in the day. So I just think it's been about smart about how the, the body supports the mind and how you can get more out of this thing between your ears. I love that. And, you know, just to give you another piece of another dot to connect, we had Robert Sapolsky on the show before. And it's a brilliant book, highly recommend one of my favorite books of all time, a deep read, very long, it's called Behave. And it's about human behavior. But he says about the over time throughout our day, our desire decreases across the day. So our cognitive energy in a way, runs out. And what he what they looked at was Alzheimer's patients, and they saw that they had higher cognitive capacity in the mornings rather than the afternoons or the evenings. And for, for example, this becomes helpful for somebody who has somebody in their family suffering from Alzheimer's, that they're going to be more cognitively alert in the morning. And it's like we have this bucket of cognitive juice that runs out throughout the day. And I found that really interesting, because it brings me to the next point, you include throughout the book a, a series of grey human experiments in every chapter. There's over 50 of these peppered throughout the book. They're a collection of techniques, actions, habits, and mini diagnostics. But you have a great one that I'd love you to share, which is crafting your job. Sure. Uh, so that's in the consciousness. Um, and just to explain for every, I, I know you quickly ran through the four C's in your introduction. So, so they are consciousness, curiosity, creativity, and collaboration. And the way the book is constructed is each one of those has two chapters effectively with each C. So I call them dance steps, the chapters, because, well, you'll know being a creative person that the creative journey to any new idea is a very circuitous path, actually. <laughs> uh, I've sort of written it in a nice, neat narrative but the reality is it's one step forward two steps back always so the, that you know that's the same with learning dance steps you can put dance steps together in a unique order just for you um and so consciousness however still comes at, at the start and this is about how can you access more purpose in your life and and the job crafting is something we actually do at london business school which is looking at the moments in which in your day where you think I am uniquely attached to this, this activity. For me, you know, it's writing. Uh, for others, it will be different things. It may be connecting to people. It may be making a fantastic sales pitch. It may be diagnosing what's wrong with an engine. 
You know, there are things that we're just all really attracted to. And so job crafting is really, and it's, of course, easier as you go further up the ladder. How can I craft my day and my job to have more of this stuff and try and just hive off less so you can get more and more into these dopamine uh, moments, uh, these flow moments? Yeah, and for those listeners stricken by fear or feel stuck in their job, to help them through in the meantime, you suggest a better story or a shift in level of control. I love this as well. If you look at any task or job, you can see it on various levels. And it's best kind of encapsulated in a rather cheesy old story. So forgive me, uh, I'll just tell this story because it just encapsulates it. So JFK, uh, the the president, turns up at a space centre and meets three janitors in the men's toilets. And he turns to the first janitor and says, what are you doing here? And the janitor turn, looks around and goes, well, Mr. President, it's pretty obvious I clean the toilets here. He turns to the second janitor and goes, you know, what are you doing here? And the janitor says, uh, well, I'm here putting food on the table for my family. And turns to the third janitor and says, what are you doing here? And he says, well, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. So apologies, you probably heard that story. It's a bit of an old chestnut. But what it beautifully shows is our level of construal about what we're seeing. So I encourage people to get creative about how they see their job, to recontextualize, to reframe it to their liking. Uh, and the, um, I mean, the other point I quite like to talk about, Aidan, is I think a kind of companion piece to that, which is not just telling a story, but that's about experiencing the purpose firsthand. So um, can I just go on and, and tell you about that? Oh, uh, please, I'm, please I'm do. Kind of ex- I'm kind of excited by it. And actually, this is not in the book, but this is a story that demonstrates how powerful this is. It's also, by the way, underpinned by a great psychologist in the States called Adam Grant, who himself has got a great book out. Uh, He did some research in this, but this is my story. So I was with a senior executive recently from a big global automotive company, and he was the president, uh, vice president involved in the safety features for the vehicle. So he oversaw the plant that did that. And I asked him, how do you get your people on the line to really live the purpose? And he said, well, once a year, we get a mangled vehicle that's a wreck. And we put that wreck in the atrium of our building and and standing next to it is a family, Uh, you know, a mum and a dad and two kids. And then we explain and tell the story that that family would not be there they wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the safety features that the people in that factory had manufactured. Now, I got kind of goosebump moment listening to that story, and, it, and I think it would for anybody. And what it demonstrates is this idea is rousing speeches about purpose. I'm not saying they're wrong. You should do that. That's your job as a leader to say this is what we stand for and this is why we're here. But if you really want to get to the deep psychology of what turns people on, introduce them to their impact on the world in the most real way possible. And I think that story kind of encapsulates it. So as well as the job crafting, the storytelling, also you can do this just experiencing the impact on customers, if you like. Yeah, I love that. I remember reading, and I can't remember where, it works in reverse as well. So if I'm the leader, I need to instill purpose to my people. So most people just come along, they get a job and it's like, oh, over to you, you go and do it. And they have to kind of curate that purpose themselves or find it themselves. But if it's explained to them 
and story told to them on a regular basis, it will it will plant in their minds. And a great one I heard was an intern starting, you know, a college job cleaning in a pub, which we had many open here in Ireland before the pandemic. And it's a lot of kids do this as jobs in their teens. I did it myself when I was 15. And I had read this story before I started that job. And it essentially went what the manager bringing on, training these people to do the job would say, have a look around the pub here. What do you see? And they went, oh, it's a mess. I have to clean. And this was the, but tell you my age, this was the, the days that there was ashtrays everywhere. It's like clean the ashtrays, clean the tables, make sure there's no empties anywhere. But a different manager changed that story. And he said, look at these people. This is their third space between home and work. Often for some of them, they're having difficulties in their lives. They're coming here to get peace from work. Maybe they have toxic coworkers, whatever it might be. This is their moment of peace. And you're enabling that by creating an environment that they can get a moment away from work or from some stress in their lives. And they had the cleanest bar in all of Dublin because of that story. And it exactly encapsulates what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a great story. And it's so true, isn't it? What I love about that story, Aidan, is, you know, that's, you know, quote unquote, quite a menial job, right? Cleaning around the tables. And, and I think if you can, if you can, if you can instill uh, meaning in wiping down tables in a pub, you can do it anywhere, especially for the really complicated, interesting jobs that many of us are lucky enough to have. And I thought during the pandemic, the whole idea of purpose has been stretched somewhat as well. So if you look at like the British government's list of um, key workers, they now list people who stack shelves in supermarkets. They now list people who, who, who deliver packages to my front door here. And of course, you've got the doctors and nurses and the porters in hospitals. So, you know, I guess my message to people in the book is purpose isn't just for nurses and people in jobs we normally associate it with. It can be for anybody if you have the imagination to really see the impact you're having on other people's lives through your labor. Beautifully articulated. You mentioned in, curios in curiosity and curiosity and curiosity being the, the superpower. But I loved how you opened the chapter on in curiosity with a quote from Stephen Fry. In curiosity is the oddest and most foolish failing there is. Now, I'm just going to park that for a second, because one thing I noticed, and I know you do a lot of, we run workshops, executive workshops, educating people, changing their mindsets, etc. And one of the things I notice is people don't have the time to reflect, even in this Zoom world, in this Microsoft Teams world, where meetings are back to back stacked up, they don't even have what I call in a mental amuse-bouche time to let their mind rest after essentially a sprint that it's gone through. Maybe it's a marathon depending on the, the length of the meeting. But this time to reflect is absolutely core in a smart machine age, in this age of AI. And you mentioned Bill Gates and his annual thinking retreat. But what I found interesting here was a connection to something we talked about in an earlier show with Retha McGrath, which is information flow, or how snow melts from the edges first. Because Bill, who's by the way, we are told a listener to the show. So if you're listening out there, Bill, howdy. And Bill created a way to listen to the information of the snow that melts from the edges of the organization with this retreat, where he'd actually apportion time to listen to all the organization and all the inputs and all the opportunities and threats that those working in the organization identified. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, now I'm completely stricken with nerves to think that Bill might be listening. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, what was really interesting, Aidan, was I never thought I would write about uh, curiosity or certainly that it wouldn't become like a, basically a quarter or just under of the book. It became really foundational when I started looking into the science of curiosity, which is relatively new. Uh, and a couple of things came out. What One that's Curiosity is not a fixed trait, which I think is enormously inspirational. So it's not like, you know, having blue eyes. You're kind of stuck with a lot of your fixed traits. Curiosity isn't like that. Think of it more like the mercury in a thermometer. So it goes up and down depending on what you're doing day to day, who you're hanging out with. It's like a virus. We know about viruses. You, It's who you who you're connected with. And I know you're incredibly connected uh, and that's a that's a really useful habit to have uh, and also what you're exploring. So that got me into it. And I realized just as meaning and focus were foundational, the next step, if you like, is to get curious about the world and start exploring it. And coming back to the Bill Gates story, maybe I should just tell the listeners that story in a tiny bit more detail because it is great. I think Bill Gates is an icon of executive learning. And this is the reason, not just because he's, you know, really important guy and done well in life. It's because when he was at his most powerful, if you like, uh, commercially speaking, when he was the executive chairman of Microsoft, he used to take two think weeks, as they were called, as you were just describing them, out of the office each year, two separate weeks. And he would just literally lock himself in a cottage and uh, and actually read the white papers, mostly, I think, that, that the Microsoft employees had written on all sorts of different things. And it was during those periods of pretty much pure curiosity that he came up with the ideas that drove the innovations that made Microsoft at the time the most powerful and uh, valuable company in the world. So, you know, they they launched their, their foray into the gaming industry, their browser, all sorts of things from that time. So I think anyone who makes that choice even though he's clearly at the top of the tree, is an icon to me because he's recognizing the the absolute value of curiosity. And building on someone else we talked about before the show, and I'm going to let a reveal to our audience here. I've never mentioned before. I always wear a pin for the a different pin for every episode that tries to reflect some element of the book or some thought that sparks to mind from the book. And I'm wearing today Leonardo da Vinci pin, and he is considered one of the most curious people of all time and one of your heroes of curiosity. But I love the story you tell. And Greg tells these great stories throughout the book. It's peppered with research stories, studies, etc, etc. And then your own anecdotes and analogies. But I love the one which literally dissects how Leonardo created the Mona Lisa. Yeah, and I noticed you've used your uh, verb carefully there. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, yes, uh, Leonardo is one of the examples. Not not the only one, by the way. I mean, I should be say before we get to him, if you want to become, uh, you know, I hate to just use the word successful because you can slice and dice that any way you want. But curiosity is one of the greatest pieces of advice, because if you look at anybody and it can be anyone from Oprah Winfrey, who's made rather a splash recently uh, to uh, Jack Ma, to Jeff Bezos, to Frank Lloyd Wright, to Walt Disney. Uh, the list goes on in their book. There will be a part of it where they talk about their curiosity and how they have fed that. 
Now, if you go back far enough, 500 years, you've got Leonardo, who was called by one historian, the most curious man that's ever lived. He was probably one of the last Renaissance people, men, as they were by then mostly, that knew everything. You know, they could cover all the domains. And he drove his life forward through questions. Actually, he, he wasn't that keen on being a painter. He was much more interested in military architecture. That's what he wanted. He wanted to defend cities. But um, the, I think the story you're referring to is, of course, the Mona Lisa is probably his most famous, if not his best picture. And people talk about the smile, the enigmatic smile of Mona Lisa. And what I found fascinating was he asked himself, why, how can I capture a human smile like that? So you, you start asking these questions, you thought, well, it's maybe to do with the muscle structure. So at night, he was kind of, during the day, he was daubing this painting. At night, he would go to the morgue in the center of the city and dissect human corpses to understand the muscle structure underneath the human face in order for him to, to paint better. So, you know, my kind of thought is what's your Mona Lisa? What are you so curious about that you actually have to go and dissect it to really understand how it really works? And I just think that's so inspiring. Yeah, I love uh, some of the verbs you use there. I think subconsciously you slice and dice and dissect. <laughs> you threw them in there for good I measure. State of mind. <laughs> but I wanted to share something with you. And this is this is a nice thing for you to know, I think. When I, I read, there's a guy called Eric Kandel, Nobel laureate, ma amazing thinker. And he said that when the mind has a, even one new thought, it never, ever returns to its original dimensions. Ralph Waldo Emerson also said that, that once the mind is stretched by a new idea, it never returns to its original dimensions. So it's one of the whys behind why I've never missed an episode in six years, never missed a blog in six years, been writing nonstop. Because for me, there's a huge value in that. But I also know if I put out ideas there, and people follow them, and I introduce them to great thinkers like you, their brain will actually change for the better forever. The dimensions in the brain will change, their view of the world will change forever. And I share all that to say, when I read that about the Mona Lisa, which I didn't know, I looked back on the Mona Lisa, and I saw it differently. I saw the edge of the smile, I saw how it looked differently, and it looked much more differently than I ever thought before. And you talk about this, that even your self-talk, how you approach something can have a dramatic impact on how you see the world or how you see something as drab as a meeting, if that is drab for you. I, I, well, I'm really pleased that you that's it's had that impact on you. That's completely made my day. And by the way, I am so going to watch this podcast back because you've mentioned at least three people that I want to rush to my whiteboard over here and write them down so I can, <laughs> I can follow them up. And I'm going to have to watch it back because uh, to remember that. But yeah, absolutely. I, I guess um, I wanted to bring to people in the book um, a kind of a subversive manual for themselves that in case they've got a toxic boss or an environment in which they're not uh, being encouraged to really uh, be more curious and creative because I think it is absolutely key and so they've got something to help them and I'm really keen on sort of basically science-based very practical tips and techniques to do that and I'm, that's why I'm so excited about what we're seeing with neuroscience so 
you know, you didn't use the word, but we're talking about neuroplasticity there, aren't we? The idea that once you start thinking in a certain way and see things, not necessarily once like you did with the Mona Lisa, but if you start repeatingly thinking things in a different way, literally your brain changes shape, which I find really inspiring as an educator, as a keynote speaker, that I'm literally physically helping to change the shape of people's brains because effectively you've got two neurons and a synapse between them. And if you run electricity through that enough it starts to groove a channel and you start thinking in a different way so you know for anyone listening to this careful how you talk to yourself careful how you describe yourself careful uh how which which areas you're gambling into because that is your future and i think that's really exciting about curiosity beautiful and I wanted to build on here because I know you, like me, we, we both develop courses for organizations. We write on a regular basis and we certainly both use a technique called diverge converge. And the way I do it, and I write sometimes for CEOs, I, I have a thought leadership element of, of my work where I write on their behalf or coach them in, in writing. And the way I do it is I have a specific email address that I send ideas to dreams, thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like a digital recipe bowl. That's how I see it. It's like this virtual recipe bowl. And what I just do is create different subject lines for even my book. I wrote it, wrote it in this way. And I just sent a subject line of the chapter and then kept collecting information like that. And I loved what you talked about, which was Twyla Tarp and her physical versions. And as an add-on, your own metaphors, your own metaphor that you use from lighthouses to kits to radars. I love this. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I've never really shared this on a podcast before, but, you know, talking, just to referring that back to what we were just saying about how you think of yourself, I genuinely don't didn't start regularly referring to myself as a writer until I this, this last book I wrote, my second book, and after it had won the business book of the year. So that was telling me something that maybe I should have embraced that a little bit earlier in my life. And, you know, what it's encouraged me to do, that validation of people kind of liking what I've written is, you know, I think one of the, one of the best pieces of advice I can give to people listening to this, whether they read the book or not, is to take themselves a little bit more seriously as a creative person. And that just means listening to your inner voices. You know, effectively, we know a lot of these ideas come to us in moments when we're relaxed, when we're out cycling or, or running or doing some exercise or taking a walk. That's when your brain actually allows the cognitive fuel that you gather during the curiosity phases to ping. You know, one idea jumps the fence to another domain of knowledge and suddenly you're like, oh, that's that's interesting. So what I mean about taking yourself a little bit more seriously as a creative person is actually listening to that. And that's why I smiled when I heard that you email yourself, because I email myself constantly. Uh, and I also send voicemails to myself because I haven't got the greatest memory. And when I'm out uh, cycling or whatever, I know it's the uh, Twyla Tharp, that story in the book. It's bring it all together. Make sure you don't waste anything. So... Maybe for the listeners, uh, let me just clarify who Twyla Tharp is. Uh, she is a choreographer in New York, and I got really inspired by her because she wrote a fantastic book called The Creative Habit. And she talks about how you can make creativity you know, a habit in your life. 
So what she does when she's got a new commission on Broadway or wherever it is, and she's a big deal in New York, she just throws everything. She's quite old school. She throws everything into a box that there's anything to do with this. So like videotapes, dolls, uh, newspaper articles. And then effectively, that's when you then rummage through your box, it's like um, brainstorming with a previous so my version of that is um i actually use evernote which is a an online clipping tool and i email myself like you do and then when i need a, a forbes article because i need to come up with a nowadays a forbes article each month i'm not starting from a blank sheet of paper because nobody likes that it's a terrible place to be in i've got like 50 ideas most of them are bad right but in there and what happens what the exciting thing is where you like Idea A, uh, is okay. Idea B, well, that's all right. Oh my goodness, if you put those together, now that's a good article. So everybody's got their own version of that. So that's what I advise with that, which is don't have try to have better ideas. That 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 is a course to really just self-flagellation. Have more ideas. Understand a lot of those ideas are quite poor and low value, but if you have a bigger portfolio of ideas you'll eventually come out with a real winner. It's so very important. And something I never realized, and because you divulged something to me, I'll share with you. And I mentioned it in the book, in my book, is that you mentioned about rugby and you mentioned about Toulouse. For example, getting there, I, I had made that vision when I was 21. I played in a club called Dax, which was a Division One club in when I was 20. And I was the youngest player, youngest forward in, in the division at the time. But I went over with this really strong mentality where I, I hadn't overset myself any expectations. And I found myself in the team, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward then years later, I had had a bad year in Leinster, which was my home club. I'd played for, for five years and I, I'd been injured, unselected on the bench, not even on the bench. So it had been a, a miserable year in many ways. But that crisis led to Toulouse and I got to Toulouse and I was being picked all the time. And this is where I'm talking about how you talk to yourself. How I talked to myself was terrible. I used to think, oh, this will come to an end. It'll be like last year, even though I was keeping out some of the world players of the year in the team. I was flying. I was playing my best rugby of all time. I was fitting in with the teammates, etc. And then all of a sudden, along comes another crisis and I get injured. And I, it's setting me on this journey, Greg, where it's why I wrote the book. It's why I do this, because I became fascinated with mindset. I became fascinated with self-talk. I became fascinated with education and how the brain is plastic, but also how we can have what's called the Gollum effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect, where what we can tell ourselves can be negative and that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and that's an amazing story. And and you know, we've talked off off camera, as it were, what a massive rugby fan I am. So, so by the way, I'm just such a fan that you did all that anyway. But it really does show the value of it, doesn't it? And, and I think, uh, like you, one of the reasons I got interested in this mindset, uh, I, you know, I mentioned in the book, uh, you, the, you're, you know, you can turn this around. And I'm talking about mostly creativity as in creating other ideas and value in firms and that kind of thing. But of course, you can turn the creativity back and you are, in a way, a creation of your own thoughts and your own previous actions. So 
I think I got interested in it because I've been so bad at some of this stuff in the past. I have definitely, you know, had imposter syndrome. I've definitely talked myself down and talked myself out of things. Uh, and so I think to me, it's a constant onward journey to try and use the best I can to be the best I can for the people around me. And I think, uh, in a way, my first book, The Spark, was a leadership book because that's the world I live in. That's kind of my bread and butter, if you like, helping to leaders run organizations. But I really wanted to write The Human Edge for anybody. In in a way, you know, you could call it a self-help book. I'm not quite sure I'm comfortable with that title just because of the sort of overall genre. But it's really about anybody can use this and use these tips and techniques when they're in their workplace to just get more out of themselves. You know, I've written my book in a similar sense that organizations are just groups of people. So if the people within the organization change and how they think and how they operate and how they collaborate, then the organization as an entity, as a group of people changes as a result. And then you start seeing it in your bottom line and workplace habits, NPS scores, all those kind of things change. But one last thing I wanted to, to share, which is so important, is that We've kind of focused on us as individuals for a lot of this, but no individual, no, no person's a mountain. And you say Scottish philosopher and essayist Thomas Carlyle commented, the lightning spark of thought generated in a solitary mind awakens its likeness in another mind. And I share that quote to tee you up for the all important skill of this time of AI and change and automation, which is innovation needs friends, which is collaboration. Yes, uh, absolutely. And as, as as I sort of talked about before, in a way, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it here because I don't see the four C's in a in a really nice, neat, straight if, uh, straight line. However, obviously, you have to write a book in that sense. So if there is a narrative to it, it's consciousness. The first one gives you the motivation, the meaning, and the time. Uh, curiosity gathers the cognitive fuel allows you to ask the questions which challenge the world. Uh, and then in, in creativity, I'll give lots of techniques to have not just one idea, but lots of ideas. So you build a portfolio. Then if you're in that situation, collaboration is needed. I, I, I see collaboration as, it's not like having a good sense of humor. You know, they put in the, uh, the those ads for Lonely Hearts ads where everyone says, I've got a good sense of humor. It's not just a universal <laughs> good. It's It's something that you use as a creative person to, try and make an impact on the world because it's quite difficult to do. It takes up a lot of time. So I saw, I take quite a thin slice through it and talk about two things, really. Forming a, a looser and wider network of human companions to help you on this journey. All the, all the science shows people with a large and loose network as well as their close people are more innovative for all sorts of different reasons. Um, uh, and the second one is I talk a, about experimentation so having a, a philosophy, an approach to introduce new things into your life, to try them out, uh, and also to, to push your ideas forward. So I think it's incredibly important. Uh, what one, I, one story, and we've been swapping stories like we're in the pub. Gosh, I wish we were. <laughs> uh, one I particularly like from the book is the one from Pixar, The Brains Trust, because I think it's really inspiring because... Uh, you know, uh, my, my kids are a bit older than yours, Aidan. They're, they're in their late teens. One's even at university now. But back in the day, I watched every single Pixar movie that there was going. I, I knew them backwards. And what an amazing company it is. And I love what Ed Catmull, who's the founder of Pixar, says about 
their movies. First of all, he says all the movies when they they start as an idea are what he calls ugly babies. And what he means by that is they are not they don't come out a beautiful thing that you want to watch. You know, it's it wasn't like that. Uh, And then what they put in their organization is a thing called the Brains Trust. And the Brains Trust is a cross-disciplinary group of people. And when the ideas come along, they literally feed back on it, not always in a really kind way, uh, but in a supportive, professional way, saying, have you thought about doing this? What about that's not really working? Could you take it in that direction? And slowly these ugly babies grow up to these incredible blockbuster movies that we know now. But what, what I find inspiring is for the rest of us is don't be so hard on yourself when, you, when you've got one of these slightly misshapen ideas. You need these people around you to, to feed back and slowly the idea gets chipped away. So maybe it just gets thrown out or put on a shelf for later. But that's how you get there. I find too many people go, I had one idea. It didn't work. I'm not creative. And I really think people should avoid doing that. Reflects again, another quote, a great, the great book, Mr. Fuller said, there's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. So something that starts off so infantile or so underdeveloped, you have no idea where it's going to go. And, and I say that from a sporting perspective as well. I was a very, and, and still remained a very untalented uh, player. I was very disciplined, but when I was a kid, I was never picked. I was always on the bench, all those kind of things. And it all, I often think of that as a, an analogy for what happens in new business models or new ideas in businesses that we always judge them on the fate accompli. We always judge them on the finished product, the butterfly. When the caterpillar can become a butterfly, it needs to go through unbelievable transformation and chipping away and you know friction in order to get there but it, it can get there. And I think we owe it to ourselves to back those ideas that may seem crazy at first or may seem fearful, fear, you know, fear filled, but we can get through it again because of collaboration and support, but mostly self-belief and putting fear in the closet as well. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes when you write a book, one of the bigger arguments only emerges to you after you've written it. And this This only occurred to me kind of afterwards that that this was the flow of it, that, you know, I was making the case that the aha moment, as it's being called, the moment where you have an idea, is such a tiny minor slice through the creative process. It's it's so important, of course, because you have the idea. And as we've talked about, you must write them down. But where the where what you can affect, the bit that you can really influence is the bit before it. And that's about being curious, about gathering the cognitive fuel, about asking better questions, more questions. Uh, And then the bit afterwards, uh, which you've just been talking about, which is how do you take that idea and work with other people, experiment with it to make it something that's going to have an impact in the world? So I think the aha moment has got a fantastic PR job done on it over the years. And my job was to say, well, it's just a tiny step in the process. Beautiful. Greg, I have an end quote. I often pull a quote that I love, and there were so many in your book that I'm going to share this one. But but as I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that in a moment. Will you ever think of one that you can share, one final message to our audience? But before I start with my end quote, where can people find out more about you? I know you do a hell of a lot of keynotes. It's been difficult to arrange a time to have you on because you're doing so many workshops, designing workshops, keynotes, etc. Where can people find out about them? 
Uh, well, uh, in terms of social media, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, and I think I'm at Greg Orm on LinkedIn. Uh, I do do Twitter in that slightly weird environment that Twitter is, and you can find me there at Gregory Orm. Uh, and then um, I've actually just recently uh, started to write a monthly, um, I guess you'd call it a newsletter. That, that sounds it makes it sound a bit boring, but it's a it's a monthly collection of the byproduct of a writer's life so i put in the best podcast i've listened to the best book i've read the best quote and i just sort of package it up for people who want a bit of cognitive fuel that's called the curious human and if you go to my website which is gregorm.org and go to the bottom of any page you can you can join that so that would be great. And now I'm really stressing out trying to think of whether I can actually quote anything. From my own <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be a quote. It could be just some message that, that you know, yeah. why you wrote the book, what your what your mission <laughs> is, I suppose. But I, I'll share with mine. I'm going to I'm going to grab my candle here to add a bit of um, because oh, you wow. because you have a background as a producer as well. I thought I better try and add something here. So your brain is never directly exposed to sunlight. Light receptors within your eye transmit messages to the brain which then creates the world you see. We're all constantly interpreting a world made up by our own design. You might as well tell it in a story that inspires you. I absolutely love that, Greg, and I thought it was a lovely way for me to sign off, but I'm going to let you sign off today's show. What's your final message for our audience? Well, I think I've been thinking about that. I thank you for picking out that quote. I do love that, the idea that and, and maybe I'll pick something that connects to that, because that is really saying that, you know, I know it's a, an old message, but it's not really what hap is happening out there. It's how you're interpreting it, how you're choosing to do that. And I would say that the, the, one of the word, uh, words I like most and I use most on my leadership programs is the ability to choose. And so this isn't a leadership book, but, it, you know, I think it's encouraging everyone to be a leader of themselves and to influence the world around them as much as possible. So I, I'd say within the book, there is a chance to see that there is stuff happening around you. And then there is a space, a sacred space in which you can then choose to use your imagination and your creativity and your curiosity and your empathy and your other human skills to decide how you respond to the world. And I think too often, myself included, we forget that space exists and that completely disempowers us. And all we're doing is responding rather algorithmically, a bit like an AI, to the world around us in the way that we always have. So I think to try and just rediscover that space of choice would be something I'd, I'd leave with people because it's one of the most powerful things that I've discovered in my own life. Author of The Human Edge, Greg Orm, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aiden.